You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 30th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, friends. How are you? Quite well. Very good. Super. What's up, Ev? Well, we seem to be short one. Bob yeah. is missing again. again. I told you he's this. He's only been in three podcasts, guys. Come on. Well, and he's not. He's not going to be joining us later. He actually has a, a work thing that's going to go all the way through the night, so he will not be able to join us this week. I do suspect that he is. He, he's bailing on us tonight, so he can work on his Halloween party decorations. Mm-hmm. That's my suspicion. What do you think, Jay? Hey, so it's November second. Do you know what happened on November 2nd, 1959? People were getting ready for Thanksgiving. No, that's absurd because Thanksgiving is still three weeks away. On November 2nd, 1959, Charles Van Doren testified before Congress that he was complicit in the fixing of the game show 21. He acknowledged that he had, in fact, been given the questions and answers beforehand. You may better know Van Doren as... Ray Fiennes, oh, uh, in the 1994 uh, the, film, the, the female listeners quiz show. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, yeah. That's, so yeah, that's that, the same guy. Great movie. Same guy. Yeah. Same guy. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Do, yeah. Does he look like Ray Fiennes or he, no? Mm-hmm. He kind of does actually. He's he's a good looking guy. He's not quite Ray Fiennes, but he's pretty good looking. Who is? And that's uh, that was part of the whole thing. The show 21 was a trivia-based TV game show, and it had terrible ratings. It was on the brink of cancellation, and the producers realized that they could net more viewers by rigging the game. So at the time, they had this homely but freakishly intelligent guy named Herb Stemple. It's, you, can't, you can't ask for better name comparisons. There's a lot going on here in terms of class and culture. But Herb Stemple was winning night after night after night and viewers could not care less. So one of the produce one of the producers met Charles Van Doren through a friend of a friend and convinced him to come on the show. Van Doren didn't even own a television set, but he decided to do it because he was an intelligent guy. He had a master's in astrophysics and a doctor in English. And so he thought it might be fun. Uh but the the most important fact about him to the producer was that he was very attractive and charismatic. So he came on the show and he ended up tying Stemple in several games. They went, you know, head to head, night after night, and the ratings built up as it got really interesting. Now, was and that all fake even at that stage? So, yeah, at that stage, they the producers had almost immediately started feeding him the questions and answers. And so then he finally went on to beat Stemple. Um, the producers convinced Stemple to take a dive on one of the questions, uh, which is when Stemple realized what was going on. Uh, he did. He did answer the wrong question purposefully, um, but then came back to tie the game. And so they went head to head, night after night. Finally, uh, Van Doren beat him. And Van Doren went on to enjoy this incredible winning streak. And he won uh, something like a million dollars in today's dollars and became this huge star. Uh, but Stemple at the time was trying to get anybody to listen to him. He was saying that the game was rigged, but nobody really cared. Uh, eventually, Stemple finally convinced Congress to take a look at it. And sure whoa, whoa, enough, whoa. 
Congress? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Congress yeah. is checking up on a TV show? Yeah. A Congress subcommittee investigated his claims, and that's where Van Doren testified that, uh, yes, he had been cheating the whole time, but he claimed that he agreed to do it because the producers told him that this was the way all quiz shows were run, uh, although even he admitted that he thought that that was a lie. Uh, but also, he was told that, look, this is a way of getting the average American interested in education and learning. And so that's why he said he did it. When he admitted the cheating in Congress, he got a round of applause, to which Congressman Stephen B. Darunian said, I'm happy that you've made the statement, but I cannot agree with most of my colleagues. See, I don't think an adult of your intelligence should be commended for simply at long last telling the truth. Ouch. Yeah. Sorry, so Congress actually (laughs) applauded, not the people in the audience. Well, most of the people in the audience were Congress people. Yeah, but you see, Jay, for Congress, telling the truth was a huge deal. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's a new (laughs) foreign territory to them. I mean, yeah. yeah, they'd never seen it before. Just, just <laughs> admitting that you were cheating for all that time. It was just, just <laughs> un, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Admitting? Oh. But to build the tension properly, I think the way, what was probably happening was that it was such a, a tense situation and such a hard thing because back then, you know, the TV, TV wasn't filled with complete nonsense like it is today. Like today, it would, it means nothing. It's well, yeah, this almost single-handedly brought down quiz shows as, as an industry on television, uh, they took a huge hit and it took them a while to crawl back into the spotlight and recover from it. And in fact, it was a couple of years ago, they tried to relaunch 21 as a game, but it only went a couple of months before petering out. So maybe America has not yet forgiven. I kind of like the visual of them locking the guy in the booth, though. That was pretty cool. It was a cool game. I, w- I would like to see it come back, but... I like trivia shows, so. Yeah, real trivia. You don't see much of that on game shows nowadays. Yeah. Jeopardy's the closest thing. That's about it. So was the right. guy a pariah after that? Like, was he okay? Oh, yeah. so was he harassed? Yeah. On the day that he confessed to Congress, he was fired from his new job at NBC. You're and fired. he was fired. And he resigned from Columbia University where he was a professor. Uh, and then he basically destroyed his academic career. It was over. He went into seclusion. He did continue teaching, just not at Columbia. Yeah. And he he worked for uh, Encyclopedia Britannica for a while, and you know mm-hmm. where he retired? Connecticut, yeah, Connecticut, C- Connecticket. Yep, it's where the family is he still was alive? from. Cornwall, Connecticut. I Apparently, think he's still yeah, alive. I think he is. Yeah. Oh my god, we got to interview him. <laughs> he, except for like in right? every think interview he's ever done, he doesn't mention the quiz show at all. What do you mean? Why would you interview? Not. Oh yeah, let's talk about what you did for the past forty years. No. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. So we're going to start out. This we're recording the night before Halloween. Evan, I mean, you're going to get us started with a nice Halloween themed news item. Uh, yes, thank you, Steve. Yep, that time of year, Halloween. The media can't help themselves as they fumble all over each other to come up with an interesting news report concerning people's belief in ghosts. And usually you don't have to look too far to find true believers in paranormal activity outside of your immediate area. But for some reason, the New York Daily News, of all folks, had to look way across the country to find theirs this year. And they uh, found it in uh, Montana, of all places. A spooked city employee uh, in Butte, Montana, who uh, believed that there were ghost hauntings at her place of work. 
She decided, uh, this employee, to uh, sneak some of the local uh, ghost hunters into the building one night and uh, so that they could set up cameras and do some recordings and do all the things that these ghost hunters, you know, typically do. And her bosses were none too pleased with her doing that. So they set up their infrared cameras, right? And uh, they they got snuck in at night. They totally got caught doing this, you know, against the rules. Uh, but why did they think it was why did they think it was haunted in the first place? I mean, there's this one woman who kind of thought that she either heard or saw things, but there's a background story. So if you all gather around, I'll tell you about it. So there was this office building, right, where the city worker used to work, and it was built in the 1970s, sometime after Nixon, but before disco, apparently. But prior to that, there was a house on that site. And in this house lived a woman, a very old woman in her elderly years. A witch! This woman occupied the home for 80 years, so it is told. Now, the facts behind where this woman, who defied these odds by living such a long time in one location, is a mystery as far as where she actually perished. Did she perish in the home or out of the home? But that who cares? Because experts claim that the spirits of the woman, perhaps, just perhaps, was unable to let go of the material world, and she dwells among the living as a series of whispers and shadows treading upon the dirt from where she once lived. And that comes according to the folks at B-Pit, the Butte Paranormal Investigative Team, B-Pit. Sounds legit. Yeah, so it's all good, right? Here's what they had to say. Uh, the public gives trust in us, and we need to take that seriously. Setting up cameras in public buildings to catch paranormal activity, I don't think is gaining the public's trust. Oh, actually, that's what the um, executive of the building actually had to say. So they were none too pleased about that. Uh, the paranormal team said that they witnessed lights flickering on and off, and they got one very good picture of, guess what, a ghost orb. Ooh, no. Orbs in the pictures. So where was this? Like They, they were doing a stakeout in the, in the middle of the night type thing? Yeah, that's right. In the building. In the building. So they had, their, they had their cameras all set up, and this was some of the material that they witnessed and recorded. It's not really even an orb, if you see the picture. It's some, some light source moving across the camera field. So you're saying it's not a real uh, fake ghost, a, it's a fake, fake ghost. It's a fake, fake ghost. Absolutely. That's clearly a light source passing in front of a camera. All right. Yeah. As they said, it's a spirit's way of trying to manifest itself. You have to understand these things. You have to be familiar with the terminology and they're experts. Remember, it's, this is their expertise. A lot of the time, spirits are stuck because they haven't had a chance to finish what they were supposed to do while they were alive. In order for them to move on, they need to finish what they started, according to the B-Pit experts. I had to tell my granddaughter that my name started with an M or an S. Yeah. Thank and you so thre- much, John Edward. What, what's the threshold? Like, does the afterlife police, like, say... Well, you didn't pay that bill, but that's not important enough, so we're not going to let you actually yeah. contact people. Like, what does it have yeah, to well, be an extreme thing, like some type of ninja revenge deal, like in order to actually come back to finish, or, or like what's the intensity here? And the employee and an accomplice, uh, someone else who worked in the building, were both given reprimands, stern, stern warnings to like, never like, do this again. But don't, me- like, don't mess with the afterlife type warning or don't do like, this, you're, you're an idiot. Probably don't yeah. waste company time and money. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're not allowed to let strangers into public property like that after hours without permission. Got it. Okay. That kind of thing. Now, there was uh, another ghost story in the news in recent days. Did you guys see this? Uh having to do with poles and the paranormal. And this also happens around this time of year. The Polish people? See, 
Yeah, the or- Polish people. <laughs> surveys, <laughs> surveys. Oh, that, okay. well, I was about to say. I Wall- think that that's. I don't think that's what you call them. But okay. Wall Street Journal is reporting the results of a new poll uh, conducted by Nielsen Entertainment, an online study. One thousand people aged eighteen and over, all of them American citizens, and so they say. Seventy-nine percent of them of the people surveyed claim some level of belief in ghosts. Seventy-nine percent. Yeah. So that's you know. Uh, that seems to be a it's little high. higher. Yeah, it seems higher than other estimates. How'd they ask the question exactly? Years. They asked a series of questions, and I believe they come up with that 79% by combining all, all of the questions. I mean, there's a, there's a slew of them. There's like 20 of them. So uh, only 21% exa- of uh, responders basically said that they do not believe at all in ghosts to every That's question. That's correct. That's right, yeah, 21%. I agree with Steve, though. But, you know, who knows what the questions were, how they're being interpreted. It wasn't like a – you know, it seems that if there was 21 questions about that, that they could get at a positive a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, okay. Here are a couple of the examples. So they asked them, how many of you have seen something you can't explain? 57% said they have. Oh, come on. How I've ma- seen stuff I can't explain. Yeah. I, and I was surprised that number actually wasn't higher. I've um, seen stuff I can't explain in my own toilet. So there you go. Oh. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 53% have heard, heard something they can't explain, and 51% have felt something they cannot explain. Go on. Right, so Jay. when you, you start you parsing it like. I, 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 I was biting my <laughs> yeah. tongue, Rebecca. You know. can't, I can't oh, make a, everything funny, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah, but right there, Ev, just stop because it's complete bullshit. Yeah. I mean, any reasonable person will say that they've heard, seen, or. You know, felt something that they can't explain. That's right. Like, who would say no to that? I'm shocked that 22% said no. Yeah, that's, yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah, so you're right. When it comes to surveys and polls and these sorts of things, we've talked about it before. The wording of the poll means everything pretty much. Uh, you have to kind of dig deep, deeper into the, uh, into the data a little bit to maybe get a little better. Um, estimate as to really what's going on. You know, a thousand people is, you know, I guess that's a typical size sample or poll, but I don't know how representative that really is in a country of 315 million. Wait, how are they polled? Online, 18 and over. Online, how? Like, was there just a poll on a website somewhere that people would go to? Correct. When they were asked which film most accurately portrays the paranormal world of oh, all no. films made, no. <laughs> ghost. The, the the highest response: forty one percent say the sixth sense. Mm. Ghost. Mm-hmm. I would go with <laughs> ghost. Sex. At least ghost, ghost has a little bit of romance in there, you know. But because <laughs> Rebecca, you want to, you want some sexy hot. You know, Patrick Swayze. I want Patrick ghost Swayze ghost. Yeah, to come behind you when you're like doing pottery and and to touch. Ghost you Patrick shit, right? Swayze can. All right, right, I'm gonna stop there. Doing pottery. <laughs> so you Harry just Potter. have to edit it out. <laughs> now there's one guys. There's a little political comp- component to this uh, oh. survey because they asked. Uh, they try. They broke it down by demographics as far as political um, affiliation goes, and it was pretty much across. The board, uh, even, uh, Americans belief in the paranormal is so strong despite polarizing view among political parties. It transcends party lines. Two thirds of Republicans, two thirds of Democrats, and two thirds of independents saying they strongly or somewhat believe in ghosts. All right. Yeah. But, dumb. 
one more one more point to make. You know, of course, depending on what population you dip into, right? Now, if you took the if you did ran this poll um, at any kind of intellectual based conference, you're going to get massive difference. You know, like I I still think that this wasn't as random as they are pretending it is. Well, I think it's just again, as we said, they 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 asked a lot of dumb questions that were almost designed to get a positive response, and so which makes the other evaluation, the other statistics like political affiliation, uninterpretable in my opinion. So the poll was equally nonsensical across the political spectrum. You know, who cares? Yeah. So I guess we should we should tell our listening audience that we have a number of listeners on the recording with us. They're listening in. To the, to the go-to meeting session that we're using to record the show. And we will do a question and answer session with them a little bit later in the show. For now, they're just going to lurk and listen to us record. But they are chatting to us. We are reading their chats. In, they in say the hello, listening audience. They, yes, they do. Well, Jeff Hello, said listening that. audience. Do you guys know who Augusto Odone is? No. Augusto oh, no. Odone. Uh, famous tenor. Um, he, is, he's a, he is Italian, Italian economist. Okay. Uh, he's most famous for his son, Lorenzo. Does that name sound familiar? Lorenzo Odone. Lorenzo. He's the guy with the oil. Yes. yes Lorenzo's, Lorenzo's oil. oil. I saw his, uh, he's Nick Nolte, right? Yeah, Nick, Nick Nolte, Nolte on the movie. Yeah, Lorenzo's That's oil. the only way I can relate movie. to historical subjects is by talking about the actors that might have portrayed them. Well, Augusto O'Donnell just passed away this this uh, past week, dredging up the story of Lorenzo's oil, and unfortunately, uh, frequently misreported. But uh, it is there actually is an interesting story here that was then totally bastardized. Surprise, surprise! By the Hollywood version, the Hollywood movie. Um, this goes back to the 1980s when uh, Lorenzo O'Donnell, Augusto's son, at the age of five, started to develop some bizarre neurological symptoms. Prior to that, was a normally developing five-year-old. He was uh, diagnosed with X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy, which is a devastating neurological disease. I thought you um, said it was a metabolic disorder. X. I thought you said X-linked. excellent. Linked. Like, what? Okay, X-linked. Got it. X-linked, which means that it's the gene is on the X chromosome. So if a male gets the gene, they have the disease. But females are carriers because they're protected by their normal X chromosome. Unless they happen to get a double dose, um, which would be a little very unusual. But uh, in this disease, it, it results in the buildup of very long-chain fatty acids in the adrenal glands and the nervous system, causing uh, adrenal dysfunction and also slowly destroying the nervous system. If you become symptomatic as a child, your life expectancy is only a few years. It, some forms of it, however, don't manifest until adulthood, in which case it progresses over decades. And fem- about half of female carriers become symptomatic as adults. They don't get the severe childhood form, though. So Lorenzo had the severe childhood form. His life expectancy was a few years once he started developing symptoms. His parents, Susan Sarandon and Nick Nolte, Rebecca, mm-hmm. Thank um, you. <laughs> yep, they uh, did not accept this prognosis, and they launched into a campaign to find a cure for their son. This is where sort of the Hollywood version and reality depart a little bit. The Hollywood version, which is annoying, you know, depicts it as – an uncaring medical establishment doesn't really care about curing patients. I mean, yeah, why, do, why is anybody going to medicine? Want to you know, waste our time curing patients? They had to basically fight upstream against against the medical establishment the whole way. Whereas in reality, Augusto Odone 
pay. He, I guess I guess he had some money. He he organized an international conference of XALD adrenal leukodystrophy experts to talk about the disease, to share ideas, and it was out of this conference that the idea for Lorenzo's oil emerged. And Augusto ran with it, kept pushing it. Eventually, found a chemist to purify, distill it down from basically cooking oils. It, what it is, it's a four to one mixture of two fatty acids, of oleic acid and erucic acid, which you can find from olive oil and rapeseed oil, very common ingredients. If you feed uh, this oil to children with adrenal leukodystrophy, they will, um, their, their very long chain fatty acid levels in the serum will come down to normal. That seemed to be a stunning a fairly dramatic vindication that that this oil could be a potential treatment, maybe even a cure for the disease. So why are they calling it an oil? Because it's an oil. It's what's fatty acids. <laughs> what well, what I, part tripped you up, Jay? I mean, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Is it the fatty acid itself is the treatment? Fatty or acids are oil. Yeah, that's it. No, I understand it's, that. I thought that I a, thought that they were suspending some chemical in the oil. And no, I was ask it's the why. oil is the is the treatment. Okay, it's a metabolic disorder, and and you know you can treat with you know eating these oils, and it it works in that it reduces your levels of the very long chain fatty acids, which is what build up in tissues, you know, nervous tissue and adrenal glands, and cause the disease. Does it also help if you saute some garlic and onions in that oil? That, hurt, that, maybe that's a a focus of a future experiment, Jay. Uh, at the end of the movie, of course, they show like kids who previously had. ALD, or that's what we're led to believe, like playing on the playground as if they've been cured. Of course, you have to end the movie with the miracle cure. In reality, the, Lorenzo's oil has been studied now for about 20 years, and it doesn't work. Oh, uh, it shit. does not. Once you become symptomatic, it has absolutely no effect on the course of the progression of the disease, unfortunately. So, However. So, well, when do you, how early do you have to take it? Do you have to take it like as soon as you get diagnosed? Like how? No, but once you're symptomatic, it's too late. But you, if you take it while you're asymptomatic, so you mm-hmm. screen children for the gene, so you have the positive genetic test, the DNA test, but you haven't developed any neurological symptoms, it reduces the number of children who go on to develop the disease by half. Wow. So it, wow. Yeah, so it's a pretty effective preventive, but it doesn't treat people who already have symptoms, which is interesting. Um, so actually, it's a, it's a nice story of a number of things, of one of a productive collaboration between a grassroots disease advocacy group, you know, in this case, parents of a child with a disease, which is very common, you know, started by survivors or family members or whatever, who collaborated in a, in a productive way with the actual scientific community, developed mm-hmm. a treatment, became rapidly adopted by physicians, was studied, ha- continues to be studied, and we learned that it's actually a pretty effective preventive therapy for asymptomatic people with the gene, although it's disappointing that it does not actually treat the progression of the disease. And it's just annoying that it was turned into this antagonistic relationship with the medical community, which is just not true. I'm sure there were people who were telling them, oh, this is going to be harder than you think, and, you know, you're not a scientist. Sure. And and, and good for him for not being dismayed by, you know, by any of that. Uh, but but it did result from a collaboration with actual scientists. The other interesting story here is that medicine and science are hard. It's The story always turns out to be more complicated than we think. So even though 
Lorenzo's oil brings down the levels of very long-chain fatty acids in the blood, that still doesn't alter the disease. So that means that these very long-chain fatty acids are not the direct or only cause of the damage. They're a marker for whatever is going on, but not the disease itself. So and the, the caution there is when you're using some proxy for an outcome measure in a clinical trial, you, you, you're never sure that that actually directly relates to the thing that you're interested in, you know, not progressing neurologically. Lorenzo himself lived to 30 years old. Every report I read about this story credited Lorenzo's oil with him living to be 30. When his What's wife, the average? He should have, he, he should have been yeah. dead by 10 years old, you know, oh. uh, by the average mm. progression of this disease. The problem is that doesn't, that's not compatible with the scientific studies which show that, that it doesn't help. And he was, he was already symptomatic, you know, been progressing before he got the treatment. So I, and I couldn't find any sufficiently accurate, detailed medical discussion of his course and treatment to, to, for me to figure out why that was. I suspect is that he got exquisite supportive care and survived yeah. despite progressing significantly neurologically. He was nonverbal by the end. I mean, he, was neurologically devastated, but he was kept alive. And so I suspect that's that's what happened. That's why he lived to be 30. But it seems it wasn't Lorenzo's oil, but there's no way Hollywood's going to admit that. I mean, their story has to end with kids playing on the playground and the parents victorious against the evil establishment because that's the narrative that they're working with. So you don't think there's going to be a sequel is what you're saying? <laughs> like a really <laughs> depressing sequel. Probably not. There's another point too that I want to bring up, and this what this was the uh, I had written and I think I've discussed this before, but there was interestingly in a Lancet commentary about Lorenzo's oil making the same point that sometimes when grassroots uh, disease or patient advocacy groups get very involved in raising money for research, um, there could be unintended consequences. For example, there should be, there needs to be a proper balance between basic research that we understand a disease and translational research looking for a cure or treatment. And if you push too early for the cure before we understand the basics, the basic science of the disease, you end up wasting a lot of time and resources shooting in the dark, you know, uh, and that actually could slow down the progress, which makes, which sounds counterintuitive. How could raising money and for research slow down progress? Well, if you're, you're putting your thumb on the scale, you're, you're shifting this balance prematurely. But I can understand, can understand families and patients saying, why is there so much research being done on in vitro and on animals? You know, let's come on, let's find the cure, let, cure, let's get going. But uh, you know what? You got to let scientists just do their job. You got to let them decide what to research, because otherwise, you could actually end up inadvertently slowing down progress. Uh, so that the commentary made that point re with regarding adrenal leukodystrophy as well. Don't know if at the end of the day was all of the attention paid to Lorenzo's oil. And the attention that that brought to the disease, was that a net benefit or negative for adrenal leukodystrophy? Probably was a benefit. All right, so Jay, you're going to tell us why cities are clamoring to build spaceports. Well, yeah, this is really cool. I, I stumbled on a, an article recently that showed a map of the United States and all of the existing spaceports that are in the United States. And I, I was shocked. I really didn't, re I didn't know that we had as many as we do. And I didn't realize that there are a lot of states out there that are also, um, applying, uh, with the, uh, FAA 
using the uh, Federal Aviation Administration's Office of Commercial Space Transportation uh, to get a license to build a spaceport. Um, so this, uh, in 2011, the U.S. Commercial Space Transportation Developments and Concepts, Vehicles, Technologies, and Spaceports, um, it, was a, it was a booklet that instructs states on how to apply for licensure to actually start a commercial spaceport. That's really cool, right? They, the government actually, you know, did something ahead of, you know, before it was even needed. But I think that the trend has become pretty obvious. We're seeing a, lo- a lot of companies dump a ton of money into developing the technology. So what we found was that Alabama, Colorado, multiple places in Florida and uh, Georgia, Hawaii, Indiana, Texas, Washington, Wisconsin, and Wyoming, these are all states in the United States, have all applied for this license. And I'll give you an idea of what spaceports we have today in in the United States. There's there's two launch sites in the Pacific Ocean. There's a, a sea platform, which is called Sea Launch Platform. They they really got creative on that name. And uh, that, that site is owned by a Russian company called Energia. And the U.S. uses that site also to launch commercial satellites. Alaska has two spaceports, the Kodiak Launch Complex and the Poker Flat Research Range. California houses two spaceports, and they're called the California Spaceport and the Mojave Air and Spaceport. Uh, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma all also have spaceports. Now, the biggest and coolest one that is that is built or almost ready to uh, to be used is in New Mexico, and their spaceport is called Spaceport America, and it's called the first, the world's first commercial spaceport. And they hope to deliver affordable uh, services to help usher in the coming age of, of the low-cost space travel that everyone is anticipating. The facility costs two hundred nine million dollars, and it's home to Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic. Like I said, the facility is nearing completion and seems to live up to what we would want a fully functional private spaceport to be, and that is it looks pretty damn cool. It actually is – Is when I first saw a picture of it, I didn't even really know what I was looking at because just by the shape of the building and everything, I, I kind of had a different expectation on what a spaceport should look like. But Look more like a modern museum or something like that. Yeah, it does. It has a very modern museum-like look to it, but they have a ton of land. Um, you know, and they have a lot of paved areas and I guess, you know, there's a lot of things that go into this, not just the big building where they're going to house, you know, the facility to, I would imagine, to repair, uh, spacecraft and prepare spacecraft for, uh, launch and reentry and everything, whatever. Like, you know, there's all that stuff going on, but they just need a lot of different areas to do the things that they need to do. They're going to be able to support, um, vertical takeoff and landing and also, you know, traditional airplane-like takeoff and landing, which I thought was cool because, you know, that is definitely a technology that people are working on. Uh, Virginia has two spaceports to continue down my list, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport and the NASA Wallops Flight Acad- uh, Flight Facility. And Florida, of course, has Cape Canaveral Spaceport and NASA's Kennedy Space Center. I'm going to Cape Canaveral next month. Uh, I want to go. What are you? Why are you going? I'm going to watch a Maven rocket launch. Do you have to buy tickets? VIP tickets. Maven. VIP tickets. Oh, shit, Steve. VIP tickets? A listener generously uh, offered them to us, and you guys didn't jump on it fast enough. This is all where the famous Apollo program took flight in the 60s and 70s, and where the space shuttle um, launched and did all of its business in the 80s to 2000s. And there's a, in 2010, the FAA approved a Jacksonville Cecil Field spaceport, so they got their license to uh, build a spaceport there. 
So what we're seeing is we're seeing a huge growth and a huge, yeah, spaceport is a massively expensive thing to undertake. Yeah. We're, we're seeing a, a growth in uh, not only states show, showing interest and in, in hope of them building these spaceports, but we're seeing that there's already been an infrastructure slowly being built behind the scenes without a lot of people knowing about it. And I'm just really excited. Like, I want to have spaceships taking off and landing every day. I just want it to be a part of the background noise. It's a lot of background Five noise. Five years, Jay. I would name my spaceport Moss Eisley Spaceport. Moss Eisley? <laughs> so, have Steve, a cantina Steve and, and I were talking cool. earlier today, and we both made the observation of, you know, why were the first spaceports in the United States in Florida, and why aren't all the other ones more, you know, towards the equator or as close to the equator as possible because of um, the fuel savings. So actually get something at, at an altitude. It's easier to get up from there than it is, say, in Connecticut where we live or in, you know, northern California. The primary reason, Jay, and I looked in this, into this a little bit further too just to get some numbers on it. If you're on the equator and you launch to the east, then you get to add the rotation of the earth to your initial kinetic energy, your, your initial velocity. So one calculation that I read uh, said that if you launch the space shuttle from the equator versus launching from the North Pole, where you have zero uh, assist from the rotation of the Earth, it would cost an extra $800,000 in fuel to get the shuttle up from the North Pole versus the equator. As, of course, the, the difference in latitude decreases, that, that difference in fuel cost and money cost decreases as well. It's actually not that great. When, when you're talking about different cities within the United States, it's actually not as big as I thought it was. Houston, for obviously big spaceport in Houston, is at 29.7 degrees north latitude. Uh, Cape Canaveral is at 28. So it's not, Houston's only a little bit north. So there's actually not that significant dif- of a difference. Alaska surprises me a little bit. That's pretty far north. Although I don't know, it kind of dips down a little bit too. So I don't know if it's, um, where exactly in Alaska it is. But the other, the other factor that was brought up was, uh, if you're launching to the east, what are you going to be flying over if you have to ditch? So Cape Canaveral, mm-hmm. it's very far south and there's nothing but Atlantic Ocean to the east. So if you have to ditch the rocket, it's not a big deal. Yep. If you're launching from California, you know, there's a, there's a lot of land, you know, yep. that you have to fly over. Um, I guess if you're in the middle of the desert, that's, that's okay. But still, you're going to be, you know, before you get significantly up into orbit, you're going to still be flying over populated areas eventually. So, and in Houston, you guess most of the flight path will be across the Gulf of Mexico before you get into uh, orbit. You know, I'm really excited about the, um, the airplane launch style, uh, you know, like just taking off like an airplane to get into outer space. That, to me, that's yeah. the way to do it. I, I don't know. The physics behind why it's a lot harder or does it in the end cost more fuel-wise to do it that way? But that seems to be, you know, a better approach for a lot of reasons. And, uh, you know, I was also thinking, can't they make it so when that when a space plane takes off and gets up to a very high altitude, you know, maybe it gets up to 60,000 feet, um, couldn't they launch something off of that to get it into a low Earth orbit much easier than, than launching it all by itself from the ground? You mean like piggybacking on another yeah. vessel and yeah. then going? That's from a there? way of staging, you know, your yeah. your launch to orbit using a flying craft as the first stage rather than just another rocket. And did you know um, that people are already paying to get low Earth orbit experiences right now? Oh yeah, yeah, it's, ha- it's happening. They're today. already like, reserving seats on the Virgin Galactic. Is that it? No, I think that people are paying for real. There, there are some people that are 
able to fulfill that. There, there, there are organizations out there that can do it. I'm sure. It well, you mean like the vomit comet and stuff? Uh, yeah. Well, they're calling it like you know a uh, low Earth orbit space ride. You know, they're, you're up and down very quickly, but you you get up to the point where you're seeing space. You know, or or a lot more. Of but, space but you don't than, go into orbit. Yeah. You're just going into very you know, high. You're very you're high. Very high. Orbit. They're taking is advantage lot, of the yeah. the gray area of what is atmosphere and what is space there. Dang yeah. It. Yeah. Where is high it? altitude launches, but not into orbit. Very quickly, we're going to do a, uh, a technology related news item. This is in, in Bob's honor. This is the item he would have covered had he been here. Have you guys heard of Li-Fi? Uh, yes, I, I have heard of Li-Fi. It's light-based Wi-Fi, essentially. It's Ooh. internet connection via light light beams instead of radio waves. But wouldn't that be worse for like going through walls and stuff? That's very astute, yes. So it's used as orthogonal frequency divisional multiplexing, OFDM, and you, you can use micro LEDs, like little bulbs, which they can uh, vary the light intensity uh, a million times per second or millions of, of times per second. Each one of those variations in light intensity is an on-off switch, right, is a zero or a one. And you can also have multiple parallel streams of information. Uh, so with that, you can get actually very high throughputs, one gigabit per second in laboratory conditions. Uh, and now Chinese researchers have announced that they've actually created a Li-Fi network with four individuals with 150 megabits per second, which is pretty good. It's actually faster internet connection than most people in China have, according to the article. So the technology seems to have promise. Uh, Rebecca, you hit on one limitation in, in that it doesn't go through walls. But some people say that could be an advantage for security reasons. Maybe you don't want it to go through walls. You have a big open office with the cubicles, and you, you can use Li-Fi within that space, but you don't have to worry about somebody pimping your, your Wi-Fi on the street. You know, but does the receiver and the does the um, transmitter and receiver have to have a completely unobstructed view of each other? Like it needs about line people? of sight, from what I read. Yeah, it requires line of sight. Mm-hmm. Eh, um, I don't know. I, you know what? That sucks. Yeah, Seriously. I mean, um, it, it's, uh, it, ha- it would probably it have its applications. It'll right? have its niche. It'll have its applications. First of all, it's it's it'll be more efficient and may actually have higher throughputs than Wi-Fi, depending on how you want to use it. Uh, but I agree, like, in my home, I want to be able to walk into any room and have access to it. I don't want to have to have an emitter in every room. Um, so it may not make sense for a home setting. Yeah. But if it's just a light, though, that you have to have in there, yeah, you just put a light for each room that you want the... Yeah, but Ev, think about it. You're walking around with your cell phone. It's in your pocket. It's coming out and you're you're sitting on the couch. You're sitting at the kitchen table. Like, it's like every, from every angle, it would have to have line of sight. It, it it doesn't play. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't I, work for that ceiling. You'd have to like put it in the ceiling. Like if, if it's gonna get, catch on at all, it sounds like it will be something extremely niche. Because at the same time, we've got people working on super Wi-Fi, which we discussed in a previous episode. Yeah. that could travel as far as you know a mile. Obviously, we're gonna go with that. I think we're gonna go with that over something that's limited and yep. focused. This is the first uh, series of this new technology i mean won't they also try to expand on this technology and make it so that it so that you know they do try to overcome some of these obstacles so you know i I think it's promising yeah i mean it's it's certainly interesting that and i think the technology will find its uses somewhere um but 
you never know. Like somebody might think of a really clever way to exploit this particular technology and you know, we all may be using it in some context. Maybe or, instead of maybe, Bluetooth? Yeah, or... <laughs> oh, I'm serious. Or, I hate I Bluetooth. Yeah, everybody Bluetooth does. Sucks. So maybe this is another <laughs> way to do like some something that's close up. That Yeah, but know. for now, yeah. you know, have all of your big devices wired and, and use a good, you know, Wi-Fi router. And don't worry about the Li-Fi stuff. Li-Fi yeah. is a lie. <laughs> Are you I bet for you it will find mayor? it will I'm find not. its uses. <laughs> what? I bet you it'll find its uses. But yeah, right. As just a right now a replacement for a Wi-Fi in your home, you know, it doesn't mm. seem like the way to go. But it's you know it's interesting technology. So Rebecca, I read an interesting news item about the perception of gender, and I uh, thought you'd like to talk about it. I read that too, Steve. Actually, I, okay, I'll admit that I, <laughs> I, I do tire sometimes about, uh, of talking about gender and things like that. But I, I read the paper that we're going to discuss and it's actually a really good paper and I wish it were available for free to everyone. Unfortunately, it's behind a, a paywall, but it is very interesting. Uh, Dr. Laurel Westbrook at Grand Valley State University just published this paper called Doing Gender, Determining Gender, Transgender People, Gender Panics, and the Maintenance of the Sex-Gender Sexuality System. So we've talked on SU a lot in the past about how complicated sex and gender can be from both a scientific and a cultural view. Most Euro-Americans, Westerners, like to think of these things in binaries, you know, male versus female, men versus women, science versus culture, sex versus gender. And unfortunately, none of those pairings is mutually exclusive. None of those is cut and dry. There are intersex people, gender fluid people, people with chromosomes that don't, quote, match their genitals, people with genitals that don't, quote, match their hormones. And yes, there are scientific terms that are based on our cultural understandings and vice versa. So, Adding to this mess, <laughs> or possibly, hopefully, decreasing the amount of misunderstanding of this mess, uh, comes Westbrook's research, which looks at how society, uh, particularly our society, Euro-American, Western society, decides who is allowed to be a man and who is allowed to be a woman. Basically, basically she looks at how people perform their gender and how other people interpret that and label that person. And she finds that people's views on the gender of others have changed over time. And perhaps more interestingly, they change depending upon the situation at hand. That's what this particular paper is about. So in this paper, she divides people's views into identity-based and biology-based criteria. Identity-based meaning that you agree to judge a person to be a man or a woman based upon how they themselves identify. And biology-based meaning that you judge a person to be a man or a woman based upon what you believe their genetics or biology dictate. And I want to make it clear that this doesn't mean that one group is more scientific than the other. As Westbrook points out in the paper, those who argue for biology-based criteria often cling to an out, outdated and simplified binary that simply doesn't exist. For this paper, Westbrook analyzed media coverage of three popular transgender cases in the 2000s, uh, sports inclusion, employment rights, and 
altering government documents like birth certificates. These cases showed instances in which identity-based criteria collided with biology-based criteria, creating what Westbrook called gender panic. And she found that in cases with gender integration, like the workplace, so when you're talking about employment rights, the louder argument, the more popular argument was for identity-based criteria to judge transgender people. Similarly, she found that in cases with strict gender separation, like sports, where you have uh, women's basketball compared to men's basketball, etc., more people argued for biology-based criteria in order to maintain the binary status quo. She points out that this can have some really ridiculous results, as in the Olympics Committee allowing transgender women to compete only if they have their penises surgically removed, despite the fact that a penis could not possibly offer them any advantage. She also cites another case of a transgender man who was forced to have a hysterectomy in order to play on an Australian football team, but was not forced to have a phalloplasty. So it didn't go both ways. Uh, he didn't have to attach a penis in order to be able to play uh, on the male team. But transgender women have to remove the penis in order to play on a women's team. So it's all quite, it gets very absurd. The research also suggested that people with biology-based criteria showed a consistent paternalistic belief that women were weak and needed protection from men, and that transgender women were particularly sexually deviant and would sexually assault other women if allowed, for instance, in the same bathroom. So when talking about uh, the differences, uh, when talking about unisex bathrooms, uh, whether or not, or just whether or not to allow transgender women into women's bathrooms. That was another case where people tended to be uh, very much in favor of biology-based criteria. And this is important because Westbrook's conclusion is that society's opinion on a person's gender changes depending upon what social space they're in. So Integrated social spaces, like the workplace, are seen as safe and non-sexual, leading more people to agree to honor a person's gender identity. Uh, but segregated spaces are seen as inherently sexual, heterosexual to be exact, and potentially dangerous if they're desegregated. These spaces, uh, these spaces highlight the sort of socially constructed binary of men and women. And they make it even more obvious when that binary is being subverted, which leads to more, quote unquote, gender panic and a stricter reliance on the biology-based determinism, which in turn leads to a more dangerous and uncomfortable climate for transgender people and others who don't conform to that gender binary. So it's a really interesting paper. Nothing in it is groundbreaking, but it's interesting because of some of the connections she makes and some of the data she has to support this stuff that a lot of people, particularly uh, people who are activists for transgender rights, have been saying for, for quite a long time. What I thought was interesting was that because people gave different answers in different situations, you actually have the same the same person might – in a non-threatening situation, go, yes, of course, individual freedom, however somebody self-identifies, I'll respect that, that's fine. And then as soon as you bring up the, uh, like, the female bathroom, like, yeah, but no penises in the female bathroom. You know, they, well, they immediately, I, they would flip, they would switch to the biology-based because that was, that's, they felt like a 
protected female space was going to be invaded by a male. That's a possibility, but that's not something that this particular research uh, states because what this research looked into wasn't a, like a laboratory experiment on how people view transgender people, but instead was a look at uh, a, a larger overall look at the media's response to certain issues. So mm. instead of talking about individuals and their opinions flip-flopping, what she's looking at is more society's views as represented by the mainstream media flip-flopping. So I, I think it would be fascinating to see something like that because I, I think you could be right. I think that that, that could actually have an impact on people's personal views. Um, but at the same time, we can't really say for sure without more study. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting because, uh, you know, I'm sitting here like asking myself a bunch of questions as you're going through this news item about what I think about different situations. And it occurred to me, like, I'm wholly unaware when I'm in the presence of a transgender person or not. Like, to me, there's, you know, first off, it's not like the, it's obvious. Sometimes all, it is. You can't say that categorically, Jay. Well, to me, to me, Steve, I'm just saying walking around in my day to day life, I'm not aware of what, when I'm looking at a transgender person or not. And personally, I, I don't care, right? You know, the only time it actually would come up in my head is in the bathroom. And to me, it's a plumbing thing. If I need to stand to pee, I need a, a urinal. So I, I would only need to be in the quote unquote men's bathroom if I have a penis because I'm going to stand up to pee. Beyond that, who gives a shit? Well, well there's, there's plumbing, you, but what about sexual orientation? Do you think you could segregate bathrooms based upon sexual I, orientation? It's, it's been happening in, in all the, in all the major cities around the world in any uh, nightclub. I mean, remember the first time I walked into a nightclub where there was no male and female bathroom? You just go in and go to an empty stall and use the sink and that's it. Well, that's, it's, who cares? So you, you bring up, there's a couple of really interesting points there. And I mean, we could really go on about this the whole show because I do find it fascinating. But one point I, I think is important is that this study, this, is, I don't think it's fair to call it a study. This research looks at, uh, the media's representation of large issues where they are speaking, uh, particularly about people's chromosomes and their genitals and using that as the basis to, to label someone. But in our day-to-day -day interactions, uh, all of us are judged primarily on our gender presentation. So, mm -hmm. uh, so you're right. Like yeah. you, you can't look at me and tell that I have, you know, two X chromosomes because maybe I don't. But I do, I do think that sports is going to be the, is the, is a sticky situation because sports. Oh yeah, that's where it gets really mm -hmm. messy. Well, cause that's because it is binary, um, by its current construction and it, and it's, it's binary because of, uh, it's competitive. So how do we allow for a fair competitive environment while there is such a complexity uh, in terms of I don't know. sex and gender. I, I don't know, Steve. I think if you just look at it like it, – as an example, I think – didn't it come up, Rebecca, where there was a, a, a girl who was a phenomenal baseball player and she was as good or if not better than any any male or any boy on the team or whatever? Remember that story you, we talked yeah. well, about? Well, you might be thinking of the runner. The runner, uh, I think I'm thinking of, Jay, yeah. Who was yeah. in the Olympics and was submitted to some pretty horrific testing. And I look at it like – this might be an oversimplification, but barring, you know, abusing drugs to in, in, enhance your performance and all that stuff, I don't think that there should be a male-female delineation. I think it should just be the best people get on the team. Yeah. However, I would be very concerned about 
a 110-pound woman being on a football team with 450-pound men just because there is a real risk of that person getting killed. Well, and a lot of people have, have made the suggestion, like, instead of having male and female differences, why not do what they do for uh, you know, wrestling or boxing where you have weight differences or, uh, skill differences, you know, different, uh, levels, right. um, which I think is perfectly fair. Evan, get us up to date Doctor. on who's that noisy. Yeah. Who's that noisy, huh? <laughs> I will do that right now. So, uh, last week, uh, with the assistance of Brian Mallow, uh, he read to the audience the puzzle. So I'm going to read it to you again. All right, you need to identify this sequence. 7.5, 7, 7.5, 10, 8.5, 4, 9, 6.5, 9, 6, 8, and finally 5.5. And there was a hint. The number of numbers was significant. How many numbers were there? There were 12 numbers. There are 12 still numbers. still have no idea. Still have no idea. And so what we have here is... Well, I don't know. Would you consider a geologic or gemologist? If you were to take all the birthstones, one per month, January through December, line them up and take a look at their hardness rating, also known as, uh, well, it's the Mohs scale of mineral hardness. Uh, those are the numbers you wind up with. Ev, did anybody guess it? No. No, nope, nobody <laughs> got that. <laughs> Not a little too, little too obscure. I was thinking of adding another hint saying, signifying that the range of numbers was significant, you know, like a one to 10 scale. I thought that would be too much of a giveaway. You probably should have added another hint that said it's about gemstones and months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. How many things are 12? Come on. 12 months. Isn't that the first thing you think of? That's what I think. No, yeah. not at all. I think of yes. 12 angry men. It's... <laughs> Let's see, we got Jack Lemon. How old was he when he did that? 13? Yeah. 13.5? <laughs> exactly. Your agent exactly. dog years. So, so tricky one. Uh, no winners from uh, last week. Sorry about that. But, uh, you know, thanks for playing. We do appreciate it. And what I will play for, for you. Hey, <laughs> classic, classic Who's That Noisy this week, which means it is an audio recording. So. Ba, 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 ba. Ba ba. I know what Didn't it is. Didn't we do that one before? Yeah, we know what that no, is. No, we've not done that. We before. must not, have done that. Before. Not as a who's that I noisy. I know we talked about it. No, before. we may, we've no. we may have talked about it before. We've talked it's, about it. It's not a who's that noisy. All right. no, but it has not been a who's that noisy. Wait, Rebecca, the reason why Evan picked that one is because he made everybody feel stupid. That's last what I'm week. saying. Yeah, it's yeah. a gimme. Yeah, she's, she feels I'm overcompensating for the difficulty of last week's puzzle by throwing out something that is relatively easy. All right. Thanks, Evan. Well, do you want to know where you have to send your correct answer? Yes. To? Thank you. Please. Because we have an email set up specifically for this. WTN WTF. At... <laughs> That's a different one. If you have a, if you have a complaint, you send it to WTF at, no, w, WTN stands for who's that noisy at theskepticsguide.org. And our message boards are, of course, sguforums.com. Go ahead and post your answer there or share the link or whatever you want to do. Good luck to everyone. Thank you, Evan. Thanks, Evan. Okay, we're going to take some live questions from our virtual audience. I apologize. I'm Bill Hunsaker. I live in uh, New Jersey. Hi, Bill. Uh, Hi, Bill. I'm from New Jersey. Rebecca's from New Jersey. Oh, well. I've heard that. Yeah. Uh, I realize this is a basic question that's been done before, but it's good to repeat it for, for people. Uh, and for me, since I'm new to the skeptical community, 
when you're when you're when you first become involved, how can you? Uh, uh, what things can you do to get you know get involved in the skeptical community? Well, you can go to local events. Is one. Uh, which yeah, but how do you find those? You local might not events? know about which you go to the skeptic <laughs> events calendar to find out more events.skeptic.org. That's one way. I always suggest that people, if they're really interested in getting involved, like one of the easiest things you can do is find a blog you like and become a frequent commenter there because there are a lot of, or, or a forum, because uh, there are a lot of good communities that build up around forums and blogs. And if you feel like you have something to contribute, you know, then to, you know, find a way that you can contribute and just do it, whether that's like starting a blog or a podcast, or maybe you have some specific area of expertise that is lacking. Uh, you know, there are many ways to offer that. You can give talks at your local events. Uh, you can start a local event if there's not one near you. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can get involved depending on what your, your talents are and what your interests are. Yeah, I agree. I definitely would, would take the time to see what the local infrastructure is to, to, to hook up with other skeptics, either locally or virtually or online, you know, get a feel for the landscape and the community. I do think sometimes a lot of people get really enthusiastic up front and they want to do it all and without really getting the lay of the land first. And then they run the risk of either duplicating effort or burning themselves out. So, Look for, look at the long haul, you know, look at the long, the long course. Um, and also, you know, take the time to really bone up your skeptical chops. So it kind of depends on what you want to do. Do you want to just learn from other skeptics, you know, participate in the intellectual community? Or like if you want to actually start contributing, then I, I really do highly recommend that you, that you don't go off half cocked, as it were, that you really do take the time to uh to get some experience i do occasionally we see like newbie skeptics who are very enthusiastic and obviously we really appreciate their enthusiasm but you know you can't just jump right in to a very uh you know at this point in time of uh, 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 intellectual community with a long history that's pretty sophisticated and think that you know you're going to be able to be, be a skeptical expert, you know, because then we see you know, we all probably have our our favorite examples of people who presented themselves as representatives of the skeptical community or the atheist community when they didn't quite have the chops, and you know that you end up embarrassing the community uh, sometimes when you do that. I don't I don't want to name any names, but you know we've Jay. It's, Jay. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> um. But I'm sure we all could think of examples of that happening. Good advice. All right, guys. We have one ad this week, so we're going to take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsor, GoToMeeting. Hey, we're using that right now. That's right. And it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We are getting kind of addicted to seeing each other when we record the show now. Speak for yourself. (laughs) You know, not all meetings can be planned in advance. Things come up. Last minute opportunities, work emergencies, great ideas to discuss. You know, it could be impossible to get everyone in the same room when you need to meet. So be prepared. Sign up for GoToMeeting. The powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online whenever you need to, wherever you are. Yeah, GoToMeeting by Citrix uh, is a really awesome app. You can, from anywhere, you know, you can get into a virtual meeting with the people you need to work to work with from PC, Mac, from a tablet. You can actually host a meeting from your iPad, both video and audio. 
HD video conferencing in, in seconds. Yeah, easy to use and indispensable if you're meeting with people uh, from around the globe or even next door because you want to see them. You want to, you know, it's nothing like seeing their faces when you're in, in a meeting. Sharing information that way is always a lot faster and easier, and I use it all the time at work, and I do love GoToMeeting. So you can start hosting a GoToMeeting in seconds from your computer or mobile device by signing up for a a free 30-day trial. No credit card required to get started. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SGU. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Completely. Yes. All right. No theme this week, just three news items. Here we go. Item number one. In the past week, astronomers have recorded the largest solar flare ever directly observed. Item number two, a new study finds that playing immersive video games increases a player's tolerance for pain and reduces their empathy for the pain of others. And item number three, neuroscientists have discovered a new type of information processing in the brain that significantly increases the brain's computing power. Evan, go first. The largest solar flare ever ever directly observed. That's what that reads, right, Steve? Why not? And it's nothing really special going on here. There's a lot of bigger stars than our own, our own sun, so maybe they found a solar flare way the heck out there. That was ginormous in technical scientific terms. The next one, playing immersive video games increases a player's tolerance for pain, reducing their empathy for the pain of others. Jeez, we we read so much about reports and stuff. Violence, video games, what can you believe? Who can you believe? What's the evidence? Where, where are the studies? What's good study? What's a bad study? So here we go again. I believe there's a new study of some kind. I don't know that this is a real conclusion that it reached. Perhaps it reached something more along the opposite. So I'll hold this one out as a possible candidate for fiction. Jumping to the last one. A new type of information processing in the brain significantly increases the brain's computing power. I'm not sure how they measure the computing power of a brain, how it's, what kind of scale it falls on or something like that. So, well, I guess I'll stick with my first instinct here. I think the player's tolerance for pain and reducing their empathy with the video games. I'm going to say that that one's the fiction. I think we're going to reveal something that's just the opposite of that. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, I, I haven't read any any of these, and I don't know. Like, I can understand largest solar flare ever directly observed. Yeah, why not? The sun has been really active, and so I can understand that happening. Why not? Neuroscientists discovered a new type of information processing that's so vague uh, as to be almost meaningless. I, I don't know. It could be just a, a a way that they didn't realize the brain storing information or communicating or exchanging packets of information. I don't know. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say, sure, why not? Immersive video games increasing a player's tolerance for pain. I can sort of get the idea of it. Um, if they're really, if they're really into some video game, maybe they're not paying attention to what's around them. Maybe they're better able to handle painful stimuli, but that doesn't 
also translate to reducing their empathy for the pain of others. That last part sounds a little too much like the standard line of how video games make you violent. Yeah, I guess I'm going to go with Evan and say that that one is also the fiction. Okay, Jay? Yeah, so I I pretty much agree. First, uh, the largest solar flare. You know, let's make sure that we uh, don't just assume that it's the the sun in our solar system. Um, And I have no reason to to disbelieve that we've observed the largest solar flare that we've ever, uh, you know, in in the history of astronomy. Sure, why not? Um, Unless you're, of course, speaking about Richard Saunders' recent space opera solar flare. That could be the other thing, if those of you are aware of that. The second item, um, yeah, you know, I was going through kind of the same logic that Evan was where, yeah, there's been a lot of people making a lot of claims about video games and they study it and they find out that it's wrong. You know, this is making a very profound claim here saying that people are somehow by playing video games that they're able to tolerate more pain and then also show less empathy towards other people. And on the surface, it seems like it's legitimate because you're killing people in video games and, you know, you're you're, kill, you're killing all of these paper dolls in a video game and you don't really care about the person and that might bleed over into your real perception of people and everything. I just don't, I don't buy it. I do think that one is the fake. But however, I would like to comment on the third one real quick before I lose my turn. I think the third one is science. I think that after um, discovering more about how the brain processes information, that they simply just found out that a lot more processes are happening than they were aware of. There's a lot more computational things going on that they were aware of. So sure, the brain is more profound than we thought it was a month ago. Absolutely. With more research, we're going to have you know, thousands of discoveries about the human brain that are going to follow along that path. So two is definitely, definitely the fiction about the video game. All right. Before we do the reveal, let's uh, get the votes from our virtual audience. You know, they've already Googled it. You know, they no, they would not have done that. They would would not have have cheated. I would. I would have. So go ahead, guys. Uh, And also, can I just mention that Fred Bremer has already sent in his who's that noisy guest? (laughs) 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 To where? Oh, to info yeah. at? Hang mm-hmm. on, I'll check that out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's totally so guys, on the button, man. The, for, <laughs> for our listeners at home who are on the call with us, give us your guess. Which one is the – just just put in which one is the fiction. Uh, one, okay. two. Okay, three. There's a two. Wow, they're evenly spread. Lots three, of threes. Three. So far, most Lots. people are three. Wait, there's no, threes two. and twos. Someone put 12, a 12. Yep, Very definitely good. 12 12. Okay. Good. Day. Good. That's good. Very <laughs> I think fun. some people are David, in Hong Kong, does 12 equal one or two? It looks oh, like two. it goes two. three, two, two, one. Okay. <laughs> Poor David. <laughs> he put it in twice. All right. Let, let's take this in reverse order. We'll start with number three. Neuroscientists have discovered a new type of information processing in the brain <laughs> that significantly increases <laughs> the brain's <laughs> computing power. <laughs> The That's rogues. all right, you guys. You guys should be proud of being so ethical. <laughs> the rogues all think this one is science. A few of our listeners yep. think this, uh, who are listening along, think this one is the fiction. This one is science. Very Yay. interesting awesome. item. What researchers have found, this is a research that's been going on for a few years, and what they found is that the dendrites of neurons don't just passively conduct the signals to the neuron, they actually process that information. There is some processing occurring at the dendritic level itself, which adds an entire layer of processing 
to the brain that we did not previously know exists. I couldn't get re- find any actual calculations on how much this would boost the computing power of the brain, but it seems that it would have to be significant, um, adding wow. another layer of, of information processing. Very interesting. So they found that the dendrites would, would don't always fire uh, in response to, say, sen- incoming sensory information. They would only fire some of the time. Different dendrites would fire and others wouldn't, and and it was clear that it was actually doing some kind of processing of that information, not just passively conducting it to the neuron. We can't harness this in any way, right? It's, it's this, interesting. We have no control over it, right? No, no, no. But it is, um, you know, every well, time I we, mean, you could start selling pills to enhance your dendrites and sell them. Oh, yeah. That, that, yeah. That, Dr. Oz. Let's, Dr. Oz will be selling that. the dendritic enhancer <laughs> yeah. any day now. <laughs> 1995. <laughs> I'm going to grind up dendrites and snort them. (laughs) It's possible that this may be involved in diseases, you know, where we didn't even know to look for this being, you know, imagine if you have impaired dendritic processing, that may actually be a disease. Who knows? Basically, for Hmm. anything that happens in the body, there's a disease associated with it not working properly, unless that would be instantly fatal, you know, in, in which case those those are the spontaneous abortions that don't get born but otherwise uh yeah pretty much everything is associated with a disorder or disease of some type well let's move on to number two a new study finds that playing immersive video games increases the player's tolerance for pain and reduces their empathy for pain in others all the rogues think this one is the fiction many of our listeners at home think this one is the fiction and this one is Science. No. This one is Fuck. science. That sucks. Virtually numbed, immersive video gaming alters real life experience. So anyway, this is a study. I'm not saying this is absolutely definitive, you know, science, but it is a study. And what they did was they compared two groups of subjects, those involved in an immersive video game and those playing a non-immersive video game, just like a regular computer game but not one where you like are occupying an avatar and, you know, running around a three-dimensional world. Um, and they found that those that were playing, so this is not while they were playing, this is after having played the immersive video game, they were, they exhibited reduced sensitivity to pain. The test they did was they had paper clips in an ice cold bucket and then they were tested on how many of the paper clips they could retrieve before the cold became too painful for them to tolerate. <laughs> what kind of weird know, circle right? of hell is that? <laughs> that's actually a pretty <laughs> standard test. Up with these pain tolerance really? to extreme cold is actually something that's fairly standard. Yeah, but using frozen paper clips, I don't know. <laughs> no, it, right? just, like, it just seems so like creative. And then they and... they punch the people in the balls, and they, <laughs> it's like really. They also <laughs> studied them, exposed them to people being. De- depicted as experiencing displeasure and the immersive players were more indifferent to the to the the discomfort or the pain of others than were the non-immersive players the researchers do attach the usual moralizing about you know these kind of immersive games numbing us to pain and ourselves and others i don't know if you know how much we can really extrapolate from this study they also warn against blurring the blurring the lines between reality and, and our virtual world. And we'll never forget that all of these studies are pretty much exclusively exclusively done on eighteen year old white middle class college students, male yeah. college students. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, your typical gamer, <laughs> computer gamer. Just say, yeah, yeah. So it's it's hard, just one it, study. It is, it is hard to extrapolate from this one. Steve, study, did they define? They 
what they what the word immersive means in their study? Yeah, like you're you're you have an avatar was what they specifically mentioned. Okay, as well, opposed you know. to pong, you know, whatever something that's not you're you're not a character. It's not um, like uh, the what's it called? It's like Space this. Invaders goggles. <laughs> it didn't mean it didn't, it did not, Oculus Rift. Those it did Oculus not Rift, mean yeah. did not mean virtual reality. It just meant that you had an avatar that you were playing in a world as opposed to. A non-immersive game, like a two-dimensional. Yeah, but in Skyrim, I helped like a thousand people. <laughs> right, Rebecca? Yeah. All I was doing was running around for this. Guy I and that murdered guy. a thousand people yeah. by sneaking up behind them and slitting their throats. So yeah, so it's so it's about even. <laughs> yeah, it's a wash. You know, it's all, it all it comes out in a wash. All right, <laughs> item number one. In the past week, astronomers have recorded the largest solar flare ever directly observed. That is the fiction. A couple of our listeners at home did guess number one. That was job, uh, Rich Rich Gray mm. said number one and Jeff Edwards, Jeff Jeff Edwards and Dick Hertz, <laughs> really Evan, <laughs> really? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> out of that's the best one I, I haven't had. used that <laughs> I haven't used that in nine years that rather than Ben no huge or, direction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or hey, would you, hey, would you blow me? <laughs> hey, would you? <laughs> Mike Hunt, yeah. I'm glad I've raised the uh, the bar on this episode. So my comment: Thank we you. didn't witness the biggest solar flare of all time, but there has been a spate of large solar flares in the last week. We are approaching a solar maximum, and there have been four Class X or X class flares since October 23rd on our sun, X- Steve. Yes, on our sun, X class are the biggest. They are then further rated by numbers, like an X. Two is twice as powerful as an X1. X3 is three times as powerful, as intense. So these are some big boys. We're getting some big solar flares. Mm. You know, what if one of these bad boys gets aimed right directly at us, uh, it could cause some problems for our satellite infrastructure. You know, it could actually yeah. cause some problems. Yeah, I mean, imagine if we lost a majority of our satellites. That would be pretty awful. The the largest solar flare ever observed, by the way, was in 1859, the Carrington Super Flare. Oh, the Carrington, of course. Yeah, it's huge. That was massive. Um, of course, that was before we had any solar infrastructure to worry about. It was only telegraph wires <laughs> at the time. If we got hit with the, with that flare today, that could be devastating. But aren't they, don't they say that a flare like that occurs every hundred fifty? Yeah, but it has to. But, <laughs> no, but it has to be. Or is that just conveniently? You know, one hundred fifty years. It ago, would have to be at the right position and everything, right? Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't. I get that. It, I, get I think that. what what um, how I might have interpreted this item if I had it was that well maybe they observed the large largest solar flare just not aimed at us. Yeah, you know, sure. it was aimed away from us, mm. so it's not a problem. But no, yeah, it wasn't. because because did it kill the telegraph grid? Right, that's a good question. Yeah, thought it had. It, it did cause problems at the, the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, then it, it was close. Now, also, astronomers have observed flares on other stars other than our sun, so-called super flares. Uh, but yeah, they have to be really big before if we can observe them light years away. The, in fact, we have, we have observed super flares on other stars up to 10,000 times as powerful as the strongest solar flare from our own sun. Astronomers are still, uh, not sure if our sun is capable of producing such a super flare, but they have observed them, although rare, they have observed them on other sun-like stars. Can you imagine a flare 10,000 times as powerful as the Carrington? So that means, that nobody won. Yeah, I swept you guys. Hmm. 
Only because Bob wasn't here, so wow. it doesn't count. Believe me, Bob the fact that Bob wasn't so. going to be here factored into my choice of items. Speaking of Bob. What? Should I call him? Oh, time to uh, check in on him. What do you say, Steve? Can you guys hear that? Hello? Bob! Yo! What's up, man? What are you doing? I had like 10 or 15 minutes, and I'm getting back. I'm going to remote back into work and probably get on the conference call again. Why? Uh, well, we took a vote over here, and everybody thinks that you're fondling corpses right now. Ha, ha, ha. Bob. Fondling? Yes! You sick bastard. Fondling. Well, I did, I did grab some corpse crotches, but only to move the prop, I promise. Right, okay. <laughs> Well, we miss you, Bob. Everybody says hi. We had a great time tonight. Uh, you know, we have everybody on go to meeting. It was awesome. It's over. Well, we're almost done. We're doing the quote, and we're going to wrap up right now. All right, Jay. Peace Jay, to you. I, Joe got me the uh, the projector, and I hooked up the DVD on my computer, and I'm, and I'm projecting it above the fucking, uh, fireplace. Yeah. Holy. All right. It's awesome. Bob, Bob, Working, huh? Bob yeah, 10,000 people are hearing this right now, so uh, really? <laughs> we're, we're on the show. Oh, That's 140,000. I'll call you later, man. Bye. <laughs> it wouldn't have been a show unless we had Bob Novella saying bastard, yeah. This isn't brand new, but it's very easy to buy now. You get a DVD and you play it. Um, you, you put it into a projector and you, you play the projector, say, like on a glass door. And what it does is it makes it look like there's something happening on the other side of the glass. And the illusion oh, is actually clever. pretty solid. It act, you know, the say I have one where zombies are walking down a hallway or whatever. It's pretty cool, but it's a very good idea. Clever. Yeah. Very clever. All right, Jay, give us a quote. I have a quote, oh. and this quote was sent in by a listener named Stefan in Minnesota. And the quote is, seeking what is true is not seeking what is desirable? And that is a quote by Albert Camus. You guys know who Albert Camus. is? Camus. I know. I, I knew I was going to mispronounce it. They actually have the, <laughs> the, the, the pronunciation here is Kami. I don't know why it's saying that, but I didn't say that at least. Kami? Yes. <laughs> it's not a, a complete show until Jay mispronounces uh, <laughs> Is a French no, uh, Nobel Prize winning author, journalist, and philosopher. And uh, All right. Thank you. Albert Jay. Camus! A uh, quick announcement. I'm going to be on 60 Minutes next week. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to be <gasps> it's cool. 60 Minutes Sports. You guys ever know that even existed? It's on Showtime. Nope. I'll be on, on November 6th. November None of those 6th. things go together. <laughs> yeah, 60 like Minutes Sports on Showtime. And, uh, yeah, they interviewed me about this guy who is selling these holographic stickers to NFL players. Do they work? They're, yeah, right. And this is like, it's like the power bands, but in sticker form, mm-hmm. you know. And he does all the parlor chick tricks, you know. Well, look, you know, he, like he pushes the guy's arm down. It's, it's applied kinesiology. And he shows how strong he is. Then he puts a cell phone next to him. And the this frequencies from the cell phone make him weak and he could bring his arm down. Oh, then he puts no. the sticker on him, the holographic mm-hmm. sticker, and it blocks the bad frequencies from the cell phone <sighs> and he's strong again. I mean, Amazing. you know. So this wow. this guy scientifically proven. This guy actually got shut down though, which is good because he was selling something called concussion caps. So that's where he made his mistake. He actually was claiming that like kids can put this stupid cap on their head and get protected from concussions. Oh uh, yeah, he didn't stay in the gray zone. No, he didn't stay in the gray zone. Jackass, he went way over. Yeah. yeah, so he got screwed. Can't go making claims now, can you? Uh, yeah. So right, yeah, so-, so they they interviewed me for that. 
Awesome, Steve. I can't wait. So cool. How much airtime yeah. do you think you'll get? <laughs> right? It's uh, you the know, they interviewed me for two hours, which means probably twenty seconds. Twelve yeah. seconds. But yeah, right. you know, I apparently I get a couple of couple of one liners in there. Uh, but you just never know until you see the final result. Yeah, so definitely. We'll see. Sixty minutes sports. Cool. And don't forget to check out the membership page of the SGU. You could become a supporting member of the SGU and get access to ad-free versions of the show, plus additional premium content every week. And it's a great and fun way to support the SGU and all of our skeptical outreach. Also, keep an eye on the page for updates and perks to various levels of membership and new membership options. We have some coming soon that we'll talk about probably next week. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Steve, I love you, thank man. You're you, awesome. Steve. Thank you. Thank and I'd you, like Doctor. to thank our virtual audience at home who was very well behaved. I hope you enjoyed thank the show as well. Thank you very much, well. guys. For not bursting in. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.